Hi, my name's Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Jonathan Polk. Jonathan is General Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at Melio, and as you'll hear, is an incredibly experienced financial services executive. JP, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's a pleasure, Alex. Let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the town that I live in now, Port Washington and the North Shore of Long Island, New York metro area. And how would you have described yourself as a kid? I'm exceptional, I'd have to admit. I like the usual assortment of uh, sports and activities and uh I would say a very sort of normal upbringing uh, for the United States and in the Northeast, uh, typical. And was there a particular moment when you were inspired to pursue a career in law or or how did that kind of come about? Well, the truth of the matter is, Alex, that I grew up pretty much sure I was never going to be a lawyer. My father was a lawyer and I used to come downstairs and it sometimes, like if I woke up at night, I'd come downstairs and I'd see that there's a light on and my father would be at his desk working still. And he'd explain to me that the law is a jealous mistress, which I think is a quote from some famous jurist or something. And he made it clear that it's a demanding profession. And I thought to myself, I really don't want to get involved in anything where I'm going to have to be sitting at my desk at 1130 or 12 midnight. So I didn't actually decide to go to law school until very late in my college career. I don't know that I could honestly say that I was inspired to decide to go to law school. It was something that I kind of deduced. I I thought about what I like to do and decided that the kinds of things I like to do are the kinds of things you do in law school and in, in the practice of law. And I sort of figured it out that way. Well, it sounds like a very uh, rational, objective approach and not a hasty one in arriving at what might be a good fit for you. And slightly different to myself, my dad was also a lawyer, maybe not as uh, hardworking as your dad. It sounds like it wasn't in my experience that he was working at 11 o'clock at night at home. It certainly was an important factor, I think, in my own decision to become a lawyer. But what was the first step then after Cornell? What was the first job you took after college? I went to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which was an extraordinarily good thing for me. When I was in law school, the overwhelming majority of my colleagues and friends in law school went to big firms in New York City. A few other major cities, the majority of them went to New York City. And it seemed like the only question on the table was whether you wanted to do litigation or corporate. And the world was pretty neatly divided into those two things. And Some people decided to hedge their bets by going to firms that had rotation programs where you could try both before you decided. I was pretty sure I didn't want to go to a big firm. I didn't think that that was going to be right for me culturally or in terms of my interests. And a law school professor of mine had a former student at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, introduced me to her. And as a result of that introduction, I decided to go there. It wasn't really on my my radar. I was lucky that a personal connection had a professional connection and things developed from there. 
And what were your key learnings then, JP, from that kind of initial phase of your career as a, a young attorney, not pursuing the kind of the typical path into a big law firm starting in the Federal Reserve Bank? I think the single greatest learning in my early years was the sanctity of the relationship between a lawyer and their client. And the lawyer that I worked most closely with, who ultimately became the general counsel of the Fed not too long after I I started there, really emphasized that very heavily. And it's a special relationship, and it's one that you don't really get a great feeling for in law school, in my opinion, at least in the law school experience I had, which was much more academic and technical. And there was a human element of it that I came to appreciate in the early years of my practice. And working in-house, you develop sort of continuing and long-term relationships with your clients that I think really make that very very real and and very apparent very early in your career, much more so than perhaps someone who goes to a big law firm and again in one of those programs spends a lot of time doing legal research and and maybe spends very little time in, with clients. Like from day one, I was meeting with and dealing with clients all the time and felt very fortunate to do that and, and found that that was one of the greatest things about doing the work was being able to help your clients with the issues they were facing. I I couldn't agree more. It's such a step change from the kind of at your academic experience to that that hands-on practical application of the law, working with your client and having a very different perspective on what the role entails. And you then did spend a period of time as a litigation associate. Is that right? You did gain some law firm experience then for a period of time? I did. So one of the things that was an extraordinary opportunity for me was that I got to try a case in federal court when I was a little less than two years out of law school. And I was first chair. And as a result of that trial, I had more hands-on trial experience than anyone else in the legal department at the Fed at that time. Things have changed since then. They have a lot of talented litigators today. But at the time, Outside counsel was used more than inside. And for whatever combination of reasons, my boss allowed me to try that case myself. And I came away from that experience with a real appetite for trial work. And I decided that if I'm going to do that, I should do it in a place where people actually do that for a living and learn something about it as opposed to being entirely self-taught. And so I looked for and found an opportunity to go to a boutique litigation firm and did that for about three years. And it was an education in commercial litigation. I can't honestly say I spent a ton of time in court. I did spend a lot of time in litigation. Looking back now with the benefit of hindsight, were there kind of practical skills as a commercial litigator that have kind of stood the test of time that that made that the right decision, you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it sharpened my writing skills. I think it sharpened my advocacy to some extent. I think it helped me to understand the mechanics of court practice in a way that remains valuable to me today, because while I don't litigate myself, I have from time to time hired litigators to help with things and understanding how things happen where the rubber meets the road from having done it a bit, I think is useful even if it's not my main responsibility today. So lots of practical skills that I got out of that. 
and you then return to the Fed. Can you maybe walk us through at a high level how your kind of role and responsibilities evolved over the kind of next 12 year phase working in the enforcement and litigation division? Yeah. So my old boss at the time was leading an investigation into a big international bank called BCCI, which some people will remember was a very large and complicated international investigation into wrongdoing by a bunch of bankers across country lines. And a lot of resources were being dedicated to that case. And the decision was made at the Fed to actually establish a team of people dedicated to the investigation and prosecution of bank fraud and related kinds of activity that falls within the Fed's jurisdiction because it supervises banks and bankers and has enforcement authority against them. This was the first such unit in the country and in the Federal Reserve System. And my former boss, who I worked for before I went to do litigation, started that team up. And he offered me a role as one of the first people on the team, which I jumped at because it seemed like the most glamorous kind of work you could possibly do. It was an opportunity to do public service, which I missed after having left the Fed and to work for an institution that I had come to love with people I really enjoyed working with. So it was a a great opportunity. And we started the team, hired a small group of people. It grew over time, and we developed a pretty robust record of large and important cases. And I think it's safe to say I had some extraordinary experiences doing some of the most interesting work I could have possibly done in those years. And we'll always count them as tremendous in terms of professional opportunity and personal growth and development. Am I correct then in saying it was the pull of public service that brought you back into the Fed in the first place and what you were kind of missing in private practice? Well, in the first place, I wish I could tell you that I grew up having an objective of doing public service. I kind of wandered into it accidentally. As I said, I didn't even know about the Fed at the time that I first got introduced to them, but found through working there how gratifying doing public service was and learned even more how much I enjoyed it when I was involved in commercial litigation that didn't have that dimension. And so maybe that's a slight refinement of what you said, but it certainly reinforced for me how great it was to be involved in that kind of work and how much I enjoy it. And if I understand correctly, after that kind of exciting 12 years, hugely fulfilling, really challenging work, you then moved into senior compliance roles within the Fed. And I'm interested to understand, like my sense is that's probably a a pretty fundamental change of role. And were there any areas of kind of personal professional development you really had to work on to be effective in that new area? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny, in hindsight, I would say the transition from doing enforcement work to doing bank supervision work and specifically in the area of anti-money laundering and corporate compliance. In, in retrospect, that jump was relatively small when you compare it to the ones that I've made since. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I was leaving a group of people I knew pretty well to a group of other people that I had relationships with, but not at all the same. And there were sort of subcultures within the Fed. There was a difference in the legal group and the bank supervision group. 
So there was a ton of learnings, getting to build new relationships and, and credibility and a fundamentally different set of responsibilities. So in that, a large transition for me mm-hmm. and one that I found exhilarating. I had an appetite for change and I found when I made the change, and by the way, it was at my instigation. I had a conversation with my boss, the guy who hired me into this enforcement unit and said, I really feel like I should try to do more and different things in my career. And he was supportive of that. And people do make moves within the Fed from one job to another, though I have to say, moving out of the legal group into other groups wasn't a normal thing to do at the time. I don't think it is any it is today either. But generally, mobility is supported inside the Fed. And so I was fortunate enough to you know, go with his blessing. And I, w- I became a client. I'd like to think a good client of the legal group and valued that transition a lot. And just the change in and of itself, I think, is for me at least, definitely makes me nervous, but also makes me energized. I, I won't say it's comfortable, but I do seek getting into situations where things are new and different and, and somewhat uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Certainly that experience I had of transitioning from practicing as a lawyer in private practice to starting a legal technology startup, definitely invigorating, yeah. challenging, nerve, nerve-wracking in, in, in uh, an equal measure. And I don't mean to date you, JP, but I, my understanding is this was kind of just before, a few years before the financial crisis took hold, that you had moved into this new role. Were there specific projects then that you led in the kind of the wake of the financial crisis? And, and what were the sorts of kind of challenges you faced in, in that kind of phase of your career? Let me see if I can answer a question that's sort of adjacent to the one that you've asked, but I'm not sure it's exactly responsive. In the financial crisis, I actually actively lobbied for and got an, a role on the team that managed the lending facility established for American International Group. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was how I got involved in the work related to the crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I emphasize that I lobbied for it. A lot of people, when they're discussing their careers, say things like, I was very happy in what I was doing. I never really thought much about doing something else. And then I got a call from Bob Smith and he laid this thing out and I reluctantly took the meeting. And I'm glad I did because I I actually ended up doing something very different in my career. I knew when the financial crisis hit that the action wasn't going to be in AML. Mm -hmm. And I felt very much the need to be involved in the most meaningful work that was going on, or I wanted to be where the action was. That's what drew me to AML too. At the time that I went to the AML team, there was a lot of effort going on to address AML issues in the time. There were foreign banks in New York that required a lot of supervision. And it was familiar to me because the enforcement work I had done in the the area, and I felt there was a real need for good supervision. And I was excited to be a part of that. And so similar impulses when the financial crisis hit, I didn't think I could be relevant or helpful doing AML work while the financial crisis was going on. The truth of the matter is nothing could have been further from relevance at the time. And so I got a role on the AIG team and and I'm pleased to say over time actually took over the leadership of that team. So felt, you know, tremendously gratified to have an opportunity to play a role in administering one of the lending lending programs that were at the core of the Fed's management of the crisis. 
there's such great career advice there for anyone in any walk of life in terms of not being passive about fundamental career decisions. It sounds like even from your days in college, you're very rational and objective about why you chose to do law and then looking to get where the action was, as you as you said there, in, in wanting to do the most challenging work or the areas that were were most relevant at a particular point in time and facilitating career growth. I think it's it's such wonderful advice. And then one thing you mentioned there was stepping in to, to ultimately lead that team. How do you approach leadership and team building? And, and what are the, the most important things you look for in a, in a team member? So a couple of things. Generally, the way I think about it, the way I was taught to think about it by the leaders that I admire the most is to try and take the ego out of it, to try and make my objective to make the people entrusted to my care successful and support their work. And I think that means, to me at least, by being really direct, I'd like to think, and I actually believe it's true to say, that when um, the people that I work with, whether they work directly for me or just our colleagues, if I compliment their work, they don't have to worry whether I mean it, because they know if I have a concern, I will express it. I've spent a lot of time over my career trying to learn how to be diplomatic in expressing my concerns, but I really feel like the most valuable thing you can be is direct and clear with people in a respectful way so that they can get, you know, a real kind of view of how the the work is being perceived and valued. And so all the things that I think about leadership are about setting up the team for success. I mentioned feedback and guidance and support. That's critical. There are other pillars too. Devising a strategy, laying out objectives, doing good contracting around what the objectives need to be so that everybody knows what we want to do and why, and hopefully they've had a role in defining what it is we want to do, but providing real Leadership is part about thought leadership and setting a course and then really being great about working collaboratively to achieve it. Those are the top things. I don't think I answered your whole question. So maybe you can remind me on the bits that I haven't gotten to. No, it's a very clear articulation of your perspective on leadership and such great advice. I think there again, my experience, it doesn't serve the people you're leading and managing well not to be transparent and direct and give them clear, regular feedback, and certainly something that some people find a real challenge in feeling like it, it's going to be taken the wrong way, result in disharmony, as opposed to helping the team, the individual get better. I think the other part of my question was, as a result of your kind of leadership principles, what do you look for in the people that you're hiring and in, in building a team? Yes, right. I was on the phone with a, a colleague recently or, or a new a new friend, and he said something that I thought was really insightful or a nice way to put it. Like him, I love a person who has what um, behaves in the same way spray insulation behaves. So if you know how spray insulation works, they sort of squirt it into a space, and then it kind of very quickly expands to fill the space. So I think... And particularly these days, working at a startup, people that are actively looking for how to 
move the ball forward, expand to fill the space that they're in, are proactive, are curious, are like, let me take that, go forward. Those are the kinds of people I think that are the greatest ones to work with, as opposed to people that are looking for where does their responsibility end, particularly in this environment, as I just said, probably no one's coming to help. Like you better just go do it. If you see something, just deal with it. Obviously, consensus build to the extent you need to, communicate to the extent you need to. They said that's obvious. Maybe it's not always, but you really do need to do those things as well. But the ideal candidate and something that I'm looking for these days are people that are really just ready to grab things and go with them, that want to own it and take it as far as they can, as opposed to someone who's got like a narrow view of what they do versus what they don't. I can certainly relate to that in that as you're building a company, going through that that rapid growth, people that kind of sit in a siloed role doing one very specific thing in a very structured process maybe aren't necessarily the best fit for something that's growing exponentially facing a whole host of different projects, initiatives, challenges along the way. And sometimes I call it more more of the athletes who can do a lot of different things and are willing to embrace them and take ownership, as you said, for their work is is so, so important. And before we get on to your time in your current role, what motivated you to make the transition from the Fed to American Express? And I suspect, was that one of the more fundamental changes in your career that you referred to earlier on? Sure. Public to private, going to a big corporate for the first time, very, very dramatic difference from anything that I had done or any environment I'd been in while I was working at the Fed. So while I had a few fairly substantial career shifts along the way while I was inside the Fed, leaving the Fed altogether after 23 years there, plus three years of the law firm, was a big change for me. And again, another one of those moments where I was well out of my comfort zone and in an entirely unfamiliar environment, I found it exhilarating. But what motivated me to do it at the time, to answer your question, was I thought that I had genetically been engineered to satisfy the need that American Express had at the time. Because I had been in the legal group and in the bank supervision group, because I had been in a couple of roles within the bank supervision group, I really felt like I had a good sense for what the regulatory process was, how it works, what examiners are looking for. And Amex at the time wanted to set up a more, for the first time, actually establish a regulatory affairs function where they had a more organized and a more sophisticated mechanism for managing the regulatory relationships. And so as a former insider inside of Amex, I felt like I had perspective that would be very useful to them. And I could speak with assurance and authority on what's motivating the examiners, how to handle them, and what goes on when they go back to their offices and discuss how things are going on in Amex. And so I felt well qualified for that, and that motivated me for it. In addition to that, I knew Amex was a great company. For one thing, my wife has worked there for 26 years now. So she was an employee of Amex. I had some insight into what the company was like. And I just knew that it had one of the great reputations of all time. And while I knew there was no such thing as a sure thing, I felt like Amex was a stable company with good prospects. And it was an opportunity for me to get a world-class education, 
in how they do the things they do. And so I went for it. It was a, a shift of gears for me. I'm very pleased to say it really did pay out in spades for me. It worked out as well as it possibly could have, and I loved it. That's fascinating, and it's amazing that you were kind of, in one sense, uniquely qualified for this role, given all your prior experience at the Fed. In another sense, kind of, it sounds like somewhat de-risked for you moving from public to private because through osmosis with your wife, you understood the culture of the organization. But I'm sure there was still kind of fundamental changes in moving into a private company. What was that experience like? And what were the biggest kind of learnings that you had to kind of absorb quickly outside of your just complete expertise and understanding how to manage relations with regulators? Oh, there was so much to do. I mean, Amex, one one of the great things about Amex, like the Fed, is that there are a lot of people that have been there for a long time. But what that means for someone who comes in as a new person, particularly at a senior level, is you're joining a bunch of people that know each other for a long time, have tight relationships, and you have to sort of earn your way into their trust and their community. So there was that hill to climb. In addition to that, while there was nothing but a blank piece of paper to create a process in. The other side of that, and so uh, licensed to do whatever I want, there was no established expectations that I was going to try to change things that people either liked or had become used to. So I didn't have that headwind. But the other side of the coin is I didn't have any established need. I didn't have any established sort of, this is a function that I know I have to deal with. I had to try and insinuate myself into the actual workings of the company and my team. There were zero people dedicated to this when I arrived. I ended up building a pretty big team. But what I mean to say is I had to sort of earn my way into the conversation on things. And I'm sure you know, Alex, like a big company, there's an initiative. They say, we're going to do this. But then the person who's meant to do it has to get traction. Nevertheless, that means basically selling it into every possible consumer. I looked at, at the people I dealt with as my clients. I couldn't make them want my advice or guidance. I couldn't make them want to include me in things. I had to explain my value prop, explain how I could be helpful, learn how to work with them, and then provide support that would end up being useful so that there could be buyers for it in the community. And that wasn't trivial. Apart from that, I had never, ever started anything from scratch before. I had never built a team from scratch before. I had never designed processes from scratch before. The Fed had lots of those things. I didn't have to create them. Maybe at the margin, I tried to refine them here and there where I thought I could. But mostly, I was making it up when I started at Amex. And again, super exciting, challenging, and thrilling, but daunting because there was nothing there when I started. And I just loved it. Again, I'm answering these questions with each paragraph saying I loved it. it it's honestly true. I I feel like I've been blessed when it comes to this career. Um, so you're going to hear that a lot. From no, me. it's it's invigorating, JP. And, and something I'm always curious about is, in my experience, certainly working with legal leaders, general counsel, legal operations teams that they work with who are trying to drive change or trying to do something new like you were doing within a very large organization that had a set way of doing things and you're trying to win hearts and minds build relationships with key stakeholders bring people with you on that journey and as you kind of articulated very often kind of 
building new processes from first principles or, or from scratch. How important is it to kind of get a, a quick win or a kind of a, a demonstrable element of value for a stakeholder or stakeholders to start to kind of build that credibility and, and build momentum in, in your kind of broader vision of what you're trying to do? I would say this. The need for a quick win is undeniable. My ability to produce quick wins was awful at Amex. I did not produce quick wins. The good news is that there was a very nice runway prepared for me. Like I had an onboarding package. There were dozens of people I was meant to meet. I was given time and runway to get momentum. So I can't honestly say that I produced quick wins in that role. I was fortunate to work with people that had seen new people come in before, had expectations about delivery that I could meet that were realistic. And, and so I, I really, again, was fortunate. It could have been very different because I, I get it. I think in most instances, and certainly in the situation I'm in now, the need for quick wins was very real. Well, presumably, JP, there was a buy-in from leadership that this was the path we needed to go on. This is a longer term objective and strategy. And you had that support. You, as you say, you had a kind of very rigorous onboarding and runway to to execute on the plan. And was that a key component, that kind of leadership support or more senior support? I think it was. I think it was. You're exactly right. And what then interested you in in the move to your current role at, at Melio? So a thought that occurred to me, and it, it didn't start with Melio, but thought that occurred to me was, as a regulatory affairs person, I was spending more time trying to help the company address issues that the regulators had identified than I was trying to like build something. I mean, I was building a team and operating a team, but the team was really dedicated to helping address regulatory concerns. Uh, on the positive side of the ledger, avoid regulatory concerns. But regulatory interactions are largely about getting feedback. And as I like to say, you know, the highest mark you usually get from a regulator is satisfactory and it goes downhill from there. So like the dialogue is not usually with regulators, not about all the things you're doing well. It's usually about the things that they've got concerns on. And so that's the world you live in. And so the appeal of going to a startup and being part of a team building new products and new services was in significant part to, to be part of the building as opposed to the remediation. And, and I'd say the second component for me is joining a startup gave me an opportunity to function at a higher level. I was uh, a fairly senior person at American Express, but the truth of the matter was, I, you know, th there, there were a fair number of fairly senior people at American Express and a very small number of super senior people. And so in a startup, I'm playing a, a role at a more senior level than, than I was at American Express. And that's very exciting to me and super interesting. It's just a different, different level, a different role, a different set of responsibilities. 
you've actually kind of led nicely onto my next question there, which was as general counsel and chief compliance officer of a company in the kind of fintech space, that is a very broad remit, right? Like there's a lot falling within your wheelhouse. I think one of your earlier answers talking about the need for people who are kind of willing to embrace a multitude of different things is so important. But but I'm interested to understand how you've kind of thought about your strategy and your your key focus for the team, given you're at a very different point of scale to Amex and you have a very broad remit with your role. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so there's a couple of thoughts that come to mind. The first one is prioritization. And I always like to say, you just have to deal with the alligators closest to the boat. And so you can't do everything all at once. And assigning priority to things is really important. And the other is you have to be a sophisticated consumer of advice. And you have to selectively and appropriately engage experts because when you have a really broad remit, the likelihood that you're going to have expertise in every facet of your job is unlikely. And I'm attracted to that situation. There are some lawyers, I think, that just love to spend their time working on the issues where they are the definitive expert, and that's what they do. And thank goodness for those people, because those are the ones that I I like to work with on all different kinds of things. But general counsels, I think, universally probably are relying on a whole range of subject matter experts in in a, a variety of disciplines. And so appropriately, selectively leveraging the work of additional experts, hiring on people onto the team, which I'm doing with different kinds of expertise and complementing that with outside counsel and otherwise is is sort of the magic blend. And it's the combination of those things, I think, that make it possible to navigate when you've got a lot of court to cover. You've so much experience in managing relationships with stakeholders, whether from your time at, at the Fed in Amex, when you had to build internal relationships as well as with regulators, how do you think about relationships with those law firms that you're dependent on for their expertise? And I think, as you say, that situational awareness of knowing when you need and who you need is is so important as a, a general counsel. But how do you think about managing those relationships with your law firms? Well, you know, there are a few things that I think about. One is, I really have high expectations for lawyers to be practical. I'm not comfortable when a lawyer can't connect an accurate statement of a rule or a standard to the facts in hand and a practical application of the rule or standard at stake. So I'm always looking for lawyers that understand us as a client, our business, or interested in that and make sure to understand it before they start giving advice and then can make those kind of practical applications and give reasonable judgments about what things mean or ought to mean and give guidance. I won't always take advice. And there's plenty of people at Melio that can attest to that. But I always want to know what advice is. And I I always want to have the benefit of of their thinking as informed by the practical stuff I just alluded to. So that's one thing. Another thing is I really look to all of my outside experts. It's not like there are hundreds of them, but the, the handful of people I go to the most, I don't want to just know 
the rule and how they in particular would apply it to my situation. But one of the great benefits of talking to people to do whatever it is they do for a living is to know what industry practices, to know what are similarly situated companies doing, what is expected, what is benchmarking. Like that's a really important factor for me day in and day out in almost everything that I do, honestly. And so I actually aggressively network with people to find out how they are handling issues that I'm likely to come up against or are dealing with. I also definitely want that from the law firms that I engage as outside counsel. And the people I've been dealing with, that's what we do together. And it's very much a collaboration. I mean, it's in their interest to develop these relationships. They want to. They have all the commercial incentives in the world to have these kinds of productive relationships. It it generates work for the firm in the long term. And it makes their services more valuable. And so we have sort of this symbiotic relationship where I need them to want to have that interest and and I benefit when they do. Such great advice and that fundamental pillar of the law firm and the lawyers you're working with within the firm, having a very good practical understanding of your business and the kind of the practical application of the advice that they are providing, as you say, is so important as well as being able to provide that context of, of best practice within the industry and interested to hear that point that you the importance of your network in as another data point for you in the approach that you're taking on things. And presumably that's part of the attraction of building your in-house team as well as is kind of having people who are just embedded within the business, being able to partner more effectively with it and, and just having a better understanding of it. Absolutely, yes. What advice would you give lawyers at an early stage in their career who maybe want to ultimately get to where you are in the most senior position leading a legal department, any kind of pieces of advice you'd give them to consider? You know, Alex, I, I, I do have a thought in response, but I want to give a disclaimer because I don't feel particularly well qualified to give advice to aspiring young lawyers. I think that every path is is a little bit different and, and it's hard to, to give people universally applicable advice. I will say this, though, with all of those disclaimers at the beginning, I, I think if you gravitate towards work that you like doing and people that you like doing it with, you're probably going to be better off than if you are chasing some theoretical absolute, but it's not actually something you enjoy spending the time necessary to do it. I don't know very many people who have the discipline necessary to succeed at something that in some very fundamental way doesn't actually bring them satisfaction and enjoyment in the activity required to do it. That's where the action is. So if you're kind of miserable while you're working, that might be a signal. And if you're really enjoying what you're doing, then you're probably going to get good at it. You'll have an interest in pursuing it and it won't feel like drudgery. I'm sure that's super insight, but it is what it is. It is, but it, I think um, you're you're right. Advice, career paths can be so subjective. It can be difficult to kind of identify an individual thing that, that tends to be true universally, but I couldn't agree more with what you said. If you love what you do, it doesn't feel like work and it uh, has a way of creating opportunity and keeps you engaged and uh, enjoying what you're doing every day. Final question from me, JP. This has been fascinating conversation. What do you enjoy doing outside of work? So I would say my current obsession is woodworking. I actually spend time building furniture and all different kinds of things. And I find that's tremendously gratifying on a whole bunch of levels. I just, the activity itself, as I was saying a minute ago, is 
is extraordinarily good for me. It, it sort of takes me out of thinking about anything else when you're working with power tools. It has a way of focusing your attention. So that's a good thing. And then I, I take a lot of satisfaction in, in generating the products, which is not to say that everything I build comes out great, but some things come out pretty good and okay. And uh, I have pieces of furniture that I've built in friends and relatives and strangers' houses. And I love that it's that I've sort of put things in all these different places around the world. And I, I kind of like that a lot. So it's a thrill for me. I do some other things, but I'd say furniture is, is my thing these days. That's amazing. And as you say, an activity that necessitates mindfulness and concentration when you're working with, uh, with power tools. But Jake does. Thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time. I really enjoyed the conversation and have personally taken a huge amount from it. Thank you, Alex. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.